Hello, I'm Sazie Todd and you're tuned into the Backyard Pet Talk podcast with Shannon Riley Coiner. Hello, Zazie. It's so great to have you here. I have been looking forward to our talk and um, our conversation about your two amazing books, Wag and Purr, um, one for dogs and one for cats, which I think is amazing. Um, before we talk about the books, um, tell me a little bit about how you got into animal behavior and how you got here and maybe even what made you decide to finally write some books about all this stuff? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me on the podcast because I'm really thrilled to come and chat with you. And I think my route into working with dogs and cats is probably a bit different, but to some extent it's the same as everyone because I think there are so many of us who have a story about how we had a dog or a cat who needed a bit of extra help. But in my case, First of all, I was actually a psychologist. My PhD is in psychology. I was an academic psychologist for a while um, in social psychology, which is how people interact with each other. So not to do with animals, but it was always at the back of my mind. So I was always a cat person from very, very young. And I was always thinking about the relationship with pets, but it was not a topic that was going to be of any interest to psychologists. Like it wasn't really something that I could do. I had a few students who did things on that because I had a lot of students do projects on things to do with identity. Um, but it's um, not something I did, except that all psychologists study animal behavior as part of their basic training and what they do. And so some of what I taught to students was basic animal behavior, you know, operant conditioning, classical conditioning, that kind of thing. So as a psychologist, you know all of that. And then actually I left academia when I moved to Canada with my husband in 2008. And... Um, Finally, we were able to get some dogs because for a long time I had wanted a dog, but I'd been too busy and traveling a lot for work and that kind of thing. And it wouldn't have been fair to get a dog. So finally, we, we were able to get a dog and actually we got two dogs. Um, and I was really surprised by some of the things that I saw people saying about dogs and how you should train dogs. And especially some of the things I saw on TV that were very, very popular at the time about what you should do with the dog. And I was thinking this does not fit with my background and what For I have sure. learned in the past. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute. This is not how operant conditioning is supposed to work or classical conditioning. I mean, you know, in the positive sense, at least. Yeah. And also I'm thinking we know that positive reinforcement works. Why are more people talking about positive reinforcement? And I'm glad to say that things have changed, but this is unfortunately still also a conversation that we need to keep having. But anyway, so then um, my mom actually gave me a copy of a book by John Bradshaw um, called Dog Sense. She sent me the English version, which is called In Defense of Dogs. And it's all about canine science and what we know about dogs. And I was like, wow, how did I not know this existed? This is so fascinating. And so um, I started my blog, Companion Animal Psychology, and I wanted to write about canine science and feline science and also share with people ways to interact with their dog and cat and help them, you know, have a happier life. Um, and I studied dog training at the prestigious Academy for Dog Trainers. Um, and I've also taken a, um, an advanced certificate in feline behavior with International Cat Care. Um, and somewhere along the way through the blogging, I thought, well, it would be nice to write a book. And I was really lucky in finding an agent and finding a publisher. And so WAG is the first one that came about 
work the science of making your dog happy and then I'm very lucky that I've also been able to write the sister book per the science of making your cat happy which is just out this year and it is so great you you hit on so many great points just in your introduction about you know humans I'm always talking to my clients about human psychology and animal psychology I mean it's still it's all so similar and it's such the same and um, you know we've changed a lot in raising children, you know, with knowing what we do know about psychology and how we treat even our marriages, you know, there's the Gottman Institute and there's all these great groups that have molded our human to human relationships to say, wait a minute, we don't need this old way of, you know, punishment and, and, and positive reinforcements better. But the dog training part was, is slow. And like you said, there's influenced by media, um, but we need to keep talking about it because it needs to get to the point where, you know, we're baffled if somebody, you know, beats their child with, you know, an object or whatever, you know, but then, but we'll still put choke chains and pinch collars on dogs. And, and sometimes it's really, they don't see the, the nuance of how those are actually similar things. And so I love that you have the human psychology and then you brought in that animal psychology of the same, you know, part. So I think that that was great. And we do, we need to keep talking about it. It, we need to keep talking about it until that what we call traditional training is like, oh, the world was flat, you know, and now it's, we realize it's not like, we need to have that full, you know, change of mindset. Um, so I love that you did that. And I love your background and you do have that different background, but I think it's an important background for people to realize this would make you an expert in happiness and, and all of these things with dogs and cats. And I'm so happy you finally got to have dogs. And I liked what you said too, that you waited until you had time. Because, you know, I know that you talk about, you know, keeping your dogs happy and, and their sleep and their nutrition and things. But a lot of times people get dogs because they want, especially during COVID, they want that dog to be their, you know, security blanket. But then it's disposable because our society has become so disposable, you know? So it's like, I don't really have time for you now. And um, they either rehome them or like, I have a client right now who has dogs who have a lot of behavior problems and she works 12 hour days. And then she goes on weekend vacations all the time. And, and I'm trying to give her a plan to help her dogs. And she's like, well, I just don't have time. And I like, ah, you know, they need it. <laughs> it's really hard. So having that time to do all these things that are in your book is really important. You have to really think about when you're adding an animal to your house, for sure. Yeah, you do. Thank you. And I think a lot of people don't actually realize before they get a pet just how much work it can be. And some people are lucky and they've had one pet that was really easy. And so that makes them think the next one will be. And for whatever reason, maybe the next pet isn't so easy and they do have behavior issues and they need a lot more from you or they need you to be there a lot more. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is really difficult. And people need to be able to go and find someone who can give them good advice on what to do about that. And, and I think people can get stuck in these situations where it doesn't turn out how they thought it would. Um, and it, it really helps if people know going in what they should be able to do, what they, sh you know, that they need to take the dog for walks or that they need to socialize the puppy and all of those things. And especially puppies, I think puppies can be a big shock for people. <laughs> right. Yes. And I, and it's just so true because they don't think about the long term. and you hit it, you know, I, you could have a, maybe you're a golden retriever person and you've had all these golden retrievers. Well, just like children, I have three kids from the same parents. <laughs> same household they could not be different you know some one's more independent one's more dependent you know and 
And dogs are the same way. And then we're getting them from different parents and their genetic background. And so expecting that if you do have that one easy one, that they're all going to be easy, really sets you up sometimes for unrealistic expectations. And, you know, so ultimately really challenges sometimes. So, you know, I, I really encourage people to always like learn before and your WAG book and both your per and the WAG, I'd be like, read this before you get a dog or a cat. So you at least have the mindset of knowing what you need to do to have a happy dog or a happy cat, because isn't that, that's what we want. I mean, we want, sometimes we care more about our dog's happiness than our own, you know? And so, but, but we don't always know what that looks like. You know, sometimes people have this idea of it looks like a certain way. Oh, well, they want to go everywhere with me. Well, maybe that's not what makes that dog happy. So figuring out what really makes them happy and individuals. Um, what would you find of all your research and writing, especially off our WAG, we'll start with just talking about WAG a little bit. What did you find most fascinating about what makes a dog happy? I think one of the things that fascinates me the most is the way our ideas of what dogs need has changed. Um, because over time, we've learned much more about not just dogs, but all kinds of animals. So we know that they're sentient. We know that they experience feelings. And it seems weird to think that scientists used to try to argue that they didn't, but that's how it was. And so that means that now we know that part of giving a dog a good life is ensuring that you're not just preventing cruelty, which is obviously essential, but that's how we used to think about things. Now we also need to think about providing positive experiences for them. And that means things like companionship with us. It means... Um, training with positive reinforcement because that's a nice fun thing for the dog to do it means providing them opportunities to play and giving them enrichment like snuffle mats and letting them use their nose and go on a sniffari or a smell walk where they can follow their nose as much as they like all of those kinds of things it means thinking more about the dog and what dogs need as a whole but also what your individual dog needs as well because for example some dogs are very sociable with other dogs they need opportunities to play with other dogs some dogs are not really very sociable and they actually are very choosy about who they hang out with and they would hate to be taken and made to play with lots of other dogs they would really prefer to stay away so you need to know what your own dog wants just yesterday she did a virtual appointment and she said i want my dog to meet everybody that they pass on the streets you know i want i want him to her to be able to greet every dog that seems appropriate i know this dog i know she's a more introverted type dog and i'm like okay let's just talk about her as an individual when she meets people, she doesn't just run up to people and say hi. She takes time and then she earns trust and then she becomes their friend. I And I talked about she has some friend dogs, but they weren't instant friends. They hung out a little bit and now they're friends. And that is such a big piece of people don't realize. I teach agility and I used to do therapy work. And sometimes I have people who come in, I want to do agility. And their dog is like, this is torture. I would never, I do not want to do agility. This that, that would be like me swimming in ice cold water. Like that would be torture. I don't want to do that. Don't make me, or they would do therapy work. And the people wanted to, to be, have their dog be a therapist. And the dog was like, I don't really like people. I mean, I don't, I'm not fearful of them. I'm not going to bite them, but it doesn't bring me joy to have strangers pet me. And people have to really look at that individual part in your book. You also talk about, which this is, I got really stuck in this section about the mental health of dogs. And you mentioned a little bit with food toys, but can you talk a little bit more about what you found with mental health of dogs? 
Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that we know is that it's a really good idea to give dogs choices if possible, because choices help them to feel more in control. I mean, obviously, it's not always possible. There are some decisions we have to make for our dogs, but we make most of the decisions in their lives. And it helps them have a, a bit of control. And it's good for their mental health if they can have choices in things. Um, and another thing is that when we're providing things that we think will be enriching for the dog, we need to pay attention to them and see, like you just said, some dogs don't enjoy something. So are they really enjoying it? Or like if it's a food puzzle toy, have you made it too hard for them? Do you need to make it easier, for example? Um, or, you know, if it's a particular type of game or there's some types of games that they like, you know, being aware of what their individual preferences are. And when you know that your dog likes something, it's good for them to give them more opportunities to do that when possible and obviously it's not always possible so suppose your dog happens to like eating oh, okay I'll take Bodger as an example he used to eat bear poop <laughs> he loved eating bear poop obviously I was not going to let him do that <laughs> some things are just not an option but yes. insofar as you can for the things that they like to do that are acceptable it's a good idea to give them opportunities to do those things 100 percent and that leads me to the other thing that I um, when these studies started coming out, because I have been, you know, doing dog training since the nineties. And so a lot of these studies have come out, you know, over the years and I've watched dog training change. One thing I got super excited about, and I still am, is all the studies that are coming out about play and how important play is and how it, um, helps their learning and helps them retain what you've learned. And I teach puppy classes for the socialization um, because puppies do need it so much. And, you know, we do some training and then we do play in the, as recess. We call it recess because they do like 15 minutes of training to 20 minutes and then recess for, you know, 10 minutes or whatever. And then we do some more training and then we do novel objects like agility things. So I try to mix it work, play, work, play so that they can retain it and there's tell me about what you have found and what you you know you talk about with play because it is something that dogs really need uh, humans need you probably can talk about that on the human aspect too but we'll stick with dogs um tell me a little bit about what you you've learned about play and what you write about with play yeah, so that sounds like the perfect setup for a, a class because I think play is so important and I'm always happy when I hear that people incorporate it in the class uh, because there's a, there has to be a reason why animals play. And it's not just puppies that play, but all kinds of animals play. And it would not have evolved if it didn't have some kind of purpose. And actually, the research suggests that there are several different purposes to play. So especially for puppies, play is important in developing motor skills. So they're still learning how to control their bodies, uh, you know, and they maybe be a bit clumsy with some of the play that they do. So it's really important as a way of helping them learn, like, this is how, how I move, this is how I jump, this is how I pounce, this, this kind of thing. And also for learning what we call acquired bite inhibition. So not to bite their playmates too hard, because if, if they do, they'll, they'll yelp and they'll stop playing. And so that helps them learn, okay, next time I shouldn't bite so hard and they'll bite more gently. And that's a really, really important skill, obviously, for dogs to have. And it's so much easier for dogs to teach that to each other than us to teach that to them, you know? Um, yeah. It is when I have people who have really mouthy puppies that haven't been playing with other dogs, it's so much harder for them to learn those boundaries around people because sometimes we overact, we end up accidentally reinforcing the biting and they get worse because we're accidentally reinforcing by giving attention to it or whatever. But puppies are so great. Ouch, that hurts. 
I'm not talking to you for a couple seconds or minutes or whatever it takes them to shake it off. And they do really start to learn, you know, yeah. that by inhibition in through play without being hurt. And it's a more natural consequence. So it's a more how life flows. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So. And you have to remember that not all puppies come from a background where they've been able to play with their fellow puppies. So some puppies might be singletons, some puppies have illnesses or whatever. And so some puppies come from puppy mills where the environment has been very impoverished and it's not really given them the space or the situation in which they might play much with their fellow pups so that's why it's especially important to include it in a class with someone supervising who can keep an eye on things and make sure that all the puppies are happy and that's perfect and I wish all puppies would have that opportunity oh it's so important what you just said too with the supervision so my class size is um eight at the max but usually it's six yeah like I you know eight if I have an assistant there, because the playtime can be extensive. You know, sometimes I have to like, you know, one puppy, this happened last night. I had a big boxer playing with a fox terrier. Fox terrier is tough, but the boxer was like body block, you know, like just goofy too, super clumsy. So I had to kind of hold her back just to give her a second to let the fox terrier sort of regroup himself. And I talk to people who go to some other puppy socialization places in my area and it'll be 20 or 30 puppies, one trainer or supervisor. And what I see is those dogs come back with really bad behaviors when they come back to my class, because I'm, and, and I'll say, who did they play with? <laughs> Cause they learned some bad stuff last week. Who did they play with? Um, because they do learn from each other. And we do, just like you said, we want to give them choices, but sometimes just like children, we can't let them just make all the choices and they can't just be free for all, you know? Or it gets too chaotic. So yeah, speaking yeah. of children too, you write about children, which I love because not all books involve dogs and children, but, and dogs and children can be an amazing, amazing experience. And dogs and children can be a disaster, you know, and really a struggle. So what did you kind of find, like what parents need to know about dogs and children to set that relationship up with, for success? One of the things I found which really surprised me is that actually it turns out that dog owners are worse than non-dog owners at reading a dog's body language when the dog is playing with a child. And it seems that the reason for that is that they're more inclined to think that an interaction is safe, even when it's not necessarily, whereas non-dog owners seem to keep their guard up a bit more. So actually one lesson is that really you do have to be paying very close attention and you probably have to supervise even closer than you think because you have to be there ready to just jump in. And we know that unfortunately dog bites to children are very, very common. Um, and so as well as being there supervising closely, it's important to know that one of the situations in which small children especially are likely to get bitten is when they approach a dog that is lying down or resting. So you have to teach them not to go up to the dog um, and also supervise them to make sure that they don't, but teach them with your help to call the dog to them if they want to be able to pet the dog. And very small children, they're still learning motor control too. So you might want to hold their hand while they pet the dog so that they don't accidentally hit the dog because it's very easy to do when you're still learning how to control your arms. Or grabbing, you know, little ones, you know, they grab everything, you know, so like my babies yeah. would like, you know, I had to have my hair back a lot because they would just grab and they hold on to your hair yep. for dear life just because their fingers still clench. I mean, it's just part of their development. 
but they do that to a dog, whether it's an ear, a tail, just the coat, fur, and the dog could turn around and take that as a, you know, as a kind of painful, and they might redirect at them. Yeah, that's right. So again, you have to be really careful to pay attention to them. And another thing is that children are still learning to interpret what the dog is saying. And so young children, when they see a dog's teeth, and we might know, okay, the dog is snarling or growling or whatever, but young people will think, well, when they see their teeth, they're smiling. So they think the dog is smiling. So they may misunderstand some of the dog body language as well, which again, will put them at risk. So it's really important to set everybody up for success, have a safe space where the dog can go, use pet gates um, to make sure that they're never together when not supervised. And so long as you do actually keep that supervision, actually they can have a wonderful relationship. Um, you know, and I, I think yeah. it can be fantastic for the dog and fantastic for the children as well. I totally agree. And when you talk about, you know, body language, I think everyone who ever gets a dog, they should, it should almost be a requirement that you have to learn dog body language, you know, because, you know, they don't speak wherever country you're in, you know, English or they don't speak Spanish, they don't speak German. They come out speaking dog, which is body language and their language is all the same. But we expect them to always just understand our language. You know, in general, people don't take the time to learn. They might know what a play bow is and they might know. Uh, and then the, the idea that wagging a tail is always happy, you know, oh, that might they're wagging their tail. They must like it, you know, and not paying attention to ears, not paying attention to how the wag of the tail is going. I think I think every person who ever comes in contact with a dog, not even just owners, you know, but. I'm a veterinary technician and a lot of veterinary staff don't understand body language and groomers don't understand body language and pet sitters. And so if we understand that, it just allows our dogs to be able to express themselves and we understand. And so there's less miscommunication too. And that's where the kids come in. If you can teach the, sometimes the kids teach the adults, if they get a chance to get their hands on this, you know, I have had kids come to private appointments and I'll start talking and, and they'll look at their mom or dad and say, see, I told you tail wagging doesn't always mean they're happy or something <laughs> like that. And that's when I really am like, okay, so we can change these generations, uh, you know, just so dogs can be understood. Mm. You know, I think it's so important. Well, before we run out of time, I also want to talk about purr because really I was saying before we got on the podcast, you don't get very many good cat books. So I'm super excited about this one because sometimes like the cat books that are in a lot of my library are, you know, how to click or train a cat or how to solve severe behavior problems like, you know, peeing outside the box or aggression or scratching. But I like that this is about maybe even getting ahead of that before those problems occur. Let's create an environment that your cat doesn't need to express themselves in those stressful ways because we have a happy cat. And um, I love that you have, um, I, I, there were so many little tips that I'm like, I wanna talk about them all, but um, what, let's start with setting up because some people don't really even know they get a cat and cats are fairly quote unquote easy, at least from the onset. You know, they seem like they don't really need a lot. They don't need you to be home. You don't, you can have a litter box. You can leave them home alone for longer periods of time. So people don't think about how to set up their house to make that cat the happiest they, they can. And sometimes they have a house where every piece of furniture is, you know, pristine, antique. And so then they get shocked when their cat scratches on the furniture and then they're mad at the cat 
instead of looking at from the cat's perspective, how can we set this up? So it's a house that's for the people and the cat. Yeah, it's so important to have your house set up right. And with that example, everyone needs to have a good scratching post for their cat. And unfortunately, even people who provide scratching posts, they're often not so not providing one that's good enough so a good scratching post is going to be really nice and tall because your cat needs to be able to get a really good stretch when they're scratching and cats have to scratch because it's part of how they care for their claws and it's also they deposit pheromones from the little pads in their paws so we have to give them good opportunities and it needs to be something nice and sturdy as well so some of the scratching posts that you get are quite flimsy mm -hmm. and then Cats, like dogs, they're individuals, so they have their own preferences. So some cats will actually prefer a horizontal surface. One of my cats, Melina, she actually loves to have a horizontal surface, and you can get some really good scratching mats and some really good cardboard, horizontal cardboard scratches as well. Um, and then cats have preferences about the surface, so a, a sisal rope thing is best for most cats, but mm -hmm. some cats, especially an older cat, will actually like something that's carpet. And then sticking with scratching posts, also you can think about where you're going to provide it because if you have a piece of furniture that you especially want to protect, you might want to strategically position your perfect scratching post right next to the sofa so that if they come there, it's like, oh, here's the perfect thing for me to scratch. And that will help. And that's one of the things. But another thing that's really important for the environment is to provide safe spaces because a cat's response to stress is typically to run and hide and also cats like to be able to kind of look around and survey the room so that's actually quite easy because you can just give your cat a cardboard box if you don't want to spend any money and this is why cats like cardboard boxes because it's a nice safe and enclosed space for them to be and there are lots of things like this that people can do and I've got a list of them in per and and like with wag there's a checklist at the end of the book so people can go through and find things that they they're already doing and also find things that they would like to do you know to help and make you their can pet find happier. some really cool things um we moved and so um we were getting getting my daughter has her cats primarily live in her room you know that's their like main spot where they get fed and things and um so we were moving and I wanted to create something and I found all these things online where we had an old dresser that we just weren't going to use anymore I was going to get rid of so we took the drawers and bolted them to the wall so she has like drawers so when people walk in her room they're like why is there a drawer like a debt like a, it's almost like a shelf but it's a drawer so they we had well, we had three one collapsed because they were it, the two men they, both of them went in there at the same time and we said okay that one's not sturdy enough but we have a bed we have um we did have litter you know in one so they could not only have the litter on the ground but they if they were up and then we had food so we have these things and they would just explore all those different um higher levels where they could watch like you said and survey the room that's and wonderful because cats really like to be <laughs> high up and to have high up spaces and i think drawers on the wall shelves on the wall having bookshelves that they can climb up and go to like I've got some bookshelves here that my cat loves to go to the top of them um, and there's a really nice website called Ikea Hackers that has ways to transfer transform your furniture into something that your pet is going to really like um, <laughs> so there are tons of things that you can do that especially if you've got a bit of imagination they don't have to cost a lot of money but they can make your cat a lot happier and people just don't think about that with cats that's probably why I wanted to make sure today we had a chance to bring up cats because so many people are just like, oh, well, I got a cat because they didn't have time for a dog. And yes, in some ways, cats don't need as much time as dogs as far as like letting them out and things like that. But a cat that doesn't get attention is going to have behavior problems too, because they still need that companionship. Not all of them. Some of them don't want to have anything to do with you 
for various reasons, but you know, but they still want you even home. Even my, I've had fearful cats over my lifetime. They still want me home. They just not, not want me to pick them up and engage with them that way. So, um, yeah. And that's a really important point too, because some cats are very, very cuddly, especially if they've been socialized well as, as kittens and some cats do not want to come so close and they would rather be in the room with you, but on the other side of the room or on the settee with you, but next to you, not on your lap. And we have to respect those choices. So that's a really good point to make. For sure. And what I want to talk about before we wrap up, even though I could talk to you for days and days about this is, um, something we, you know, more and more people are using food toys for their dogs. So I recommend it for my puppies and I recommend it for a lot of dogs that I work with, you know, feed them out of Kong wobblers, kibble nibble balls, you know, snuffle mats, licky mats, whatever, you know, do hide treats, like, you know, make them use those brains, but people um, don't talk, think about that from cats and, um, you know, find, having cats have food toys and different kind of food puzzles it's something I think some people don't even realize it's even available. And can you say anything about food toys and puzzles that, you know, you like or things that you've talked about you've seen with cats that helps them improve their quality of life? Yeah, it's a really good thing to do for them. There's actually some recent research that suggests that unlike all of the species that have been tested, cats actually prefer to have their food for free rather than have to work for it. But we still think it's good for them to have food puzzle toys and it gives them something to do. And in a normal day, a cat that was having to find their own food, maybe they would be hunting 10 to 12 mice a day and they would eat lots of small meals throughout the day so you can use food puzzle toys to kind of replicate a more natural feeding process for them and some of the food balls are fantastic but there's there's a whole load of really really nice um, toys that you can get for cats very very different ones Um, so whatever kind of cat you have you can find something that they will use but the key is to make it really easy for them when you start so fill it absolutely to the brim so that the food falls out easily and put treats in there as well to help get their attention because you otherwise they're going to be like wait I'm used to free food what 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 am I having to do (laughs) exactly (laughs) but when you have those really playful ones my daughter on a truly forced free we have a kid's corner where when my daughter was younger um, during COVID, she, her cats, um, she was home because everybody was home for COVID. So we were doing lots of arts and crafts and we got a cheer, a cereal box and um, she cut holes in the tops and the sides. And then we put treats in the box with the thing and her, one of the cat, our cats, Nemo, who's an uh, orange tabby. And he's always kind of getting into trouble. So we're all, you know, cause he's just, he's just a curious, he's one of those curious cats, one that the nine lives, the kind that my daughter always seems to attract the ones that get into lots of trouble and do things. And you're like, how did you hurt yourself? You know, where, where did you do this? But Nemo was one and he, we have this video of him. He absolutely loves, and it was just a cereal box. It cost us nothing additional. We already had eaten the cereal and he played for it. We had to like actually make new ones because then he would chew on the cardboard a little bit and do those things. And for him, that was way better than I've bought him the circle, like the toys that you roll and the food comes out. He was like, yeah, not really interested in rolling a ball around the, you know, the house, but give me this box and I will, you know, play with it for hours. So it's that individual looking at all those different kinds of toys and there's so many available. 
Yeah, and some cats like to push things and some like to fish things out with their paws and so on. So it's a good idea to to pay attention. So one of my cats, he won't fish things out with his paws at all. And that's quite useful for me because he he is the one who is on a diet. And my <laughs> other cat is quite skinny. And so it means that there is a place where I can put food and she will fish it out with her paws. And he will only go there if he's desperate. <laughs> <laughs> you so know what? And, and that helps so much. And um, I just think it's, we need to start. And I, and I think the world is getting here and with books like yours and all that there's different people I've talked to on podcasts and, you know, the, my website, we're really starting to help people see the, the welfare of pets is important and they're in our lives and we can't just assume, oh, they're just animals. It's just a dog. It's just a cat. Like, having a good quality of life for them. And we, and that's where I'm so happy that you were able to be here with us today and just to share about your books, because I think if people read Purr and Wag, they'd really get an idea of like how to set their house up and their life up for success without being complicated. You know, sometimes people get overwhelmed if you're like, they, you have, you have to walk them and you have to have this strategic structure to make them happy, but that might not be what makes that animal happy and so I like how you have lots of opportunity you know and talking about the choice and give them a choice and maybe they don't like this treat or they don't like this toy well it doesn't mean I've had people say well I gave a Kong wobbler they didn't like it and I'm like well have you tried a sniffy mat or a licky mat or have you tried anything else well no because they didn't like this one toy well I don't really like video games. So if you gave me a video game like I'm not gonna want to do that as much but give me a book and I'll read a book so we need to realize that our animals are just as much individuals as we are. And what makes me happy may not make you happy. Doesn't mean either one is wrong. It's just our individuals, just like what makes my dog or cat happy may not make another dog or cat happy and being open-minded about that. And I'm that's why I'm super excited about your books. I'm hoping that it helps the world see their dogs from and cats from a different perspective. Thank you so much. And hopefully, I think when you understand those things, then your pet is actually less likely to have behavior issues and you're more likely to have a good relationship with them. So it's good for the pet and it's good for the pet guardian too. For sure. Now, before we end, do you have anything else that you would want to share with the audience and with the people who are listening? No, I mean, I think we've talked about the most important topics. It's all about knowing what your dog or cat needs and thinking of them as an individual and choices for them and choices for you too in terms of how you make these things work in your life. Because like you say, there are lots of different ways to provide enrichment and hopefully people can find something that works for their pet and works for them too. And it helps to keep everybody happier. That is the thing. If you can find a key where you like it and they like it, you know, that's where like I'm sharing with agility just because I teach it. Um, I've been teaching for years and years, but when people like it, you know, then they want to show up for the class. And, and if the dog likes it, if the dog doesn't like it, then the people aren't going to like it. Or if the people don't like it, the dog may like it, but it's not going to be as fun. And so finding those things you've got like together, that's where sports and all the different trainings, there's so many freestyle and rally. And I mean, it's nose work. And when you both can find it, it's like having a best friend who you both have the same interests and same movies or same hobbies. It's more fun to do it together if you can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. More fun and good for both of you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us today. I um, really enjoyed it. And I could talk to you for hours about all this stuff because it's just I just love making my whole um, philosophy is, you know, care and empathy and compassion for our pets and 
And I love being able to talk to people and give them real life strategies on what, how that looks, you know, because sometimes you say, well, be empathetic and they don't understand or be compassionate or, you know, do give them choices. So I love this because I think there's some really concrete things. And if they want more information, they can always check out the books too. Thank you. It's been really fun to chat with you. Real pleasure to be on your podcast and I hope we'll keep in touch. Thank you very much. And um, we'll talk to you later. And thank you all for listening. Thank you.